Welcome to Role Models for Change, a series of conversations with social entrepreneurs and other innovators working on the front lines of some of the world's most pressing problems. Emily Bancroft is president of Village Reach, an organisation that works to transform healthcare delivery to reach everyone. Village Reach won the Skoll Award in 2006. Its initiative in Malawi Chapatala Chapafoni, a toll-free hotline that provides health and nutrition information to people in remote communities, is an international model for closing rural healthcare gaps. Village Reach recently transitioned Chapatala Chapafoni successfully to the Malawian Ministry of Health, which has made the service its primary platform for COVID-19 information. James Nardella, former Skoll Foundation Principal and current Chief Programme Officer for Last Mile Health, sat down with Emily in April of 2019 to talk about her personal journey to this work, why government partnerships are a crucial lever for systems change and her vision for global health equity. If you can remember as a little girl there, what did you want to be growing up? I absolutely wanted to be a marine biologist. I was going to swim with dolphins. There were no dolphins in Maine. It's cold there. The ocean's cold, but but I was sure that that's what I was going to do. Um, that was first. But then I wanted to be a doctor, which is a bit of a typical question, you know, a typical answer for somebody who works in health. Um, but I think at the time it felt slightly more realistic than than the marine biologist answer. But as an undergrad, you studied religion, right? I did. And that's actually a really interesting story. When I was a junior in high school, I had the opportunity to travel. I had a a good friend whose dad was a pediatric surgeon. And he worked um, every year. He'd go down for two weeks to Haiti. And he worked um, at the Albert Schweitzer Hospital there. And he was the only pediatric surgeon who was at the hospital regularly. Um, And so he did this two-week rotation, and they would save up cases for him to come. And I went, um, you know, one one year. They always went around Thanksgiving. And one year, my friend asked me, do you want to come along with me? And so I went, and I spent two weeks at the hospital with her and her family and her dad. And and I got to be in the hospital, you know, see what rural health care looked like. The Albert Schweitzer Hospital is a very good hospital in, in Haiti, but, you know, in a very rural area. Um, got to see this issue of people literally waiting. I mean, I, I got to come into one of his surgeries and it was a, a girl that had been waiting. She had an obstruction and she had been waiting for, you know, nine months for him to come um, and do the surgery. And I remember just feeling, you know, it was such a wake up call for me of like, this is what healthcare looks like. Um, this is what healthcare looks like around the world. And I got to follow along with the doctor. You know, we were young. They didn't really know what to do with us, but we were around for two weeks. So one of the doctors was very nice and let me just shadow her and spend time watching what she did. And it was an incredibly formative experience. And I mean, it was a huge privilege that I had of being able to do that sort of travel when I was younger. And it was so far from what my experience had been, obviously, growing up. And it was, it was just one of those those moments in time that you always remember. But what changed was I got into college and started going down the path of being a pre-medical student. And I I happened to go to a university where you could make a choice. Pre-medical wasn't a major. It was just a set of classes that you had to take. You could do something else. So I was going to be a molecular biology major because that seemed like the right thing to do if you wanted to go on a medical track. 
And the summer after my um, sophomore year in college, I went back to Haiti. And I felt like Haiti had been sort of this formative experience of that's where I decided, oh, yes, I really want to be a doctor instead of a marine biologist. So I went back. And this time, I sort of pieced together some different things that I could do while I was down there. You know, one of them was spending time in a clinic in City Soleil, one of the urban settlements in Port-au-Prince that, you know, many people know because it's relatively notorious for um, just being one of the, the largest, you know, urban slums in in the world. And um, the clinic was so incredibly under-resourced. I mean, I was there with, there were a few other volunteer doctors, there were a few, you know, Haitian health providers that were there, but there was absolutely nothing that we could really do for a lot of the patients that came in. In that clinic, in that moment that I realized that this wasn't really just about healthcare, that the, the, what people were coming into the clinic for was really about poverty, was really about other things going on in their life that healthcare was just a band-aid for. Right. And I had this moment of medicine is incredibly important. You know, doctors and nurses and they're incredibly important, but there's something bigger here. And there's something that this clinic can't provide that's desperately needed. So that started me on this big journey of, well, what else is out there? And I think it, it, when I was in school, if you wanted to study medicine, you were a doctor. There was no, or if you wanted to study health, you were a doctor. There was no other pathway that had been offered up to me. And you know, health and medicine were inextricably linked in my mind. And that experience in Haiti sort of made me go, well, wait, this isn't, Health is not just about medicine. Health is about a lot of other things. And so I got back, thought, you know, I don't really want to be in a lab. I want to do something different. I didn't have to, you know, I had that choice at the time. And I really wanted to understand culture. And I really wanted to understand why people make the choices that they make. I follow you. I think about, you know, Paul Farmer draws on the some of the theology around, um, like, theology of the oppressed, Um but the, the whole notion that yeah. Paul Farmer draws on this preferential option mm-hmm. for the poor, that's a theological idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's based not in healthcare alone, but in the experience of materially poor, poor people. And even in my own experience of running a healthcare program in Kenya, I saw so frequently how materially poor people don't express their poverty in a single sector or dimension. They don't say, if, if only my child were well, all things would be made right. right. They, they would think about their family's needs in these multiple dimensions, right? The, my child is sick, but I'm also concerned about her school life and I'm concerned about her safety and the violence that she might face or I'm concerned about her rights and her ability to make a living and mm-hmm. how she might be treated in the world. All of those, th- I mean, anyone who is a parent understands we don't separate those different dimensions of our child's right. um, humanity. So yeah. why would we expect any patient to do so? Yeah. And people are bringing their, their whole selves into a hospital or into a clinic or into anything that they do. And so how is, how is public health, how is health care, how is medicine addressing people as, as whole human beings. Yeah. And I work for an organization that, that does believe that healthcare access, right? I mean, we focus on ensuring that there's quality access, um, for really rural and remote and, um, underserved communities. 
And so sometimes in my mind, I have to reconcile these two things because I know that that is not the only aspect of what makes somebody healthy. I mean, that's a that's been embedded in a lot of my my previous work. But I think the reason that I do feel that this is so important is because, you know, there are a number of key things that need to be in place for someone to live, you know, a healthy, fulfilled and prosperous life. But we know that a healthcare event or a lack of access to care when you need it can be a completely devastating event to a family or to an individual. I mean, we see that in the United States. We see that you know, in other countries, this is not a, this is a human problem, not a problem that's unique to any one geography. And so, although I strongly believe it's not the only piece of the puzzle, um, I do believe that that access point to healthcare, whether it's through a community health worker, whether it's to, you know, through a hotline that connects you directly to a healthcare provider who can speak to you and actually spend time speaking to you and help you understand your options, whether it's, you know, information that you access through your, your friends and your community. I mean, these are critical components of making sure that when you need care, it's there for you. And if that care is not there, it can be devastating. And so it's not the only piece, but I feel like it is an incredibly critical piece um, of the puzzle. And if I can help to make sure that the the places that we work are not like that facility that I volunteered in in Port-au-Prince where there was literally nothing on the shelves. There was really nothing that we could, you know, provide to people. You know, if we can make sure that when somebody does go to access care, the medicines are there, that the trained health workers are there, that those health workers spend time with them, you know, that their questions are answered, that they receive the diagnosis that they need and the information that they need, you know, that can be sort of a shifting event. But even health equity as a movement has, I I would call it a a theology behind it, right? It has a belief in human dignity and a belief that all people are deserving of a basic amount of health care as a part of their human rights. And that, that has to do with something we believe as much as a set of services that need to be delivered. Absolutely. And that in my mind, is the glue that holds a lot of disparate actors together, whether they're working in community health or supply chain management or hospital-based care, uh, a belief that all human beings, regardless of where they were born, deserve health care, and that where you were born shouldn't decide whether whether you live or die. Exactly. That's actually that's a theological belief, yeah. um, or it's ideological, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder how having studied religion relates to that. It it does and I, I it absolutely is a I would say theological belief. There are certain basic things that we need as human beings. Health care is one of those things where we know how to fix so many of the problems, so many of the diseases, so many of the sicknesses that we see. And if we cannot, you know, we live in a world of incredible inequality and increasing inequality. And if we can't strongly believe that there's no reason that, you know, I walk into a facility and have an array of options in front of me, whereas somebody else can walk into a facility in another place and not only not have access to the medicines that they need, but maybe not be treated in a respectful or fair way. I mean, there's, there's no reason for that. We, we know what to do, and it's just a question of, of how we do it. I had the benefit at, at one point in my career to work with Physicians for Human Rights. 
I think of it, it was a, I did a, a two-year fellowship with them working specifically with health professionals in Sub-Saharan Africa to really help them use their voice for advocating for the, the working conditions and the needs of their patients. Because, you know, Physicians for Human Rights was built around the idea that healthcare professionals are very respected members of society, you know, educated they often are behind a lot of the research. They're often behind a lot of the um, knowledge base that we have about healthcare. And if we can engage that voice, you know, throughout the world in speaking up for the fact that healthcare is a human right and the fact that um, everybody does deserve equal access to healthcare, that could be a very powerful mechanism. And so that was a really amazing experience to get to have to work with healthcare professionals in Sub-Saharan Africa and to really see them use their voices to talk about the conditions that their patients were facing and what solutions needed to be in place to address those conditions. Let's talk about Village Reach. When someone outside of global health asks you, you know, what is Village Reach? How do you describe your work? I just think, what do you say to your next door neighbor or a parent of your, of your son when you're asked what you do? Yeah. I say that you know, what Village Reach cares about is making sure that everyone has access to quality health care and that the way that we do that is in looking at what is it that a health worker needs in order to deliver their job effectively and what is it that a community needs in order to access that system. I talk a lot about how we believe in a world where nobody will lack access to treatment because medicines aren't there and that the way that we do that is to make sure that health workers have everything that they need to do their job effectively and that communities have what they need in order to access that care. And so I'll talk about how we really believe that no patient should ever, no community member should ever lack access to the treatment that they need because medicines aren't actually there where they need to be and how every person within the healthcare system needs to be able to make decisions about their own health or the health of the communities that they serve and that that data and information is needed to um, to help them do that. In the work that Village Reach does, what's most fulfilling to you personally? I love seeing an idea that hatches as something really small, often something coming from an interesting idea that somebody had in the community and actually seeing that come to fruition into something that's impacting millions of people. So I'll give an example. When I, early on in my time at Village Reach, there was a competition that was run in Malawi where um, the Ministry of Health asked people in Malawi to come up with what was their idea for how you could really improve the lives of women and children. And so they got thousands of responses from the community and they called through those and, you know, went through a process to sort of, and the winning idea was this idea that there should be a hotline. Very simple. That, you know, right now in Malawi, and we've done time motion studies that have shown this, a provider spends about 90 seconds talking to a patient in a health facility 90 seconds so imagine that you've come to the health facility you have you're ill your your child is ill you're trying to explain what's wrong you know hear what the provider has to say find out what you're supposed to do about it and that's all happening in 90 seconds a 90 second interaction and so this true social entrepreneur i would say um his name is Soyapi Mumba. Um, he had been working in technology and he really believed that there was a way to, you know, use phones 
and simple technologies to make sure that people had another point of access to the healthcare facility that wasn't just walking in. And this seems like a no-brainer to us. I mean, I use at home, you know, my doctor's office hotline to call when my son is sick and I don't know whether, you know, his ear hurting is something that I should do something about or whether I need to come in or whether I can just do something at home. I look up things online. I, there are all sorts of ways that I access information as a consumer. Right. And those ways were not always open to somebody you know, in a rural community in Malawi. And so, so Yapi thought, I really think there's something that we can do about this. And so at Village Reach, we had the opportunity to work with Soyapi to actually try to bring this idea to fruition. And so at first it was just a, you know, small district-wide, you know, proof of concept idea where we worked with Soyapi and his, um, the technology firm that he worked with to develop a hotline system that would link into the electronic medical record system that was being um, piloted in Malawi, where when people called in to the hotline, they would get registered into the health system. But they would also have somebody who would talk to them. And, and I remember when we first started rolling this out in the community and first started, and this was in 2011, so it was quite some time ago, I really didn't know if people would pick up the phone and call because we're talking about a very transactional, you know, like this is a community where personal relationships and sort of speaking to somebody one-on-one -on -one is, is how information is often carried and traveled and, and, you know, asking people to pick up a phone, something that was generally used to make the quickest exchange of information possible because phones are expensive, um, asking them to, to pick that up and actually imagine that the person on the other end of the line could give them some useful information that might be helpful to them. I just wasn't sure that it would work, but it did, you know, when we found that people were spending about 10 minutes, um, you know, with hotline workers, and that's a huge difference of spending 90 seconds versus 10 minutes. And we found that people then coming to the health center were actually more informed consumers of what they needed and that health workers were commenting that those, they could tell those that had used the hotline because they were coming in you know, at the right time or they were coming in with the right questions, the right information. Um, and so that, you know, has now scaled up to something that the Ministry of Health has brought to 18 million people across Malawi. And it started from this idea that this one person had about how something could be different um, based on what he had seen in his you know, talking with others and, and traveling and, and seeing things in other parts of the world. So that to me is the most exciting thing when you can take an idea and actually put it into action and then see it get integrated into a health system to the point that, you know, when I was most recently in Malawi and I was talking with the director of clinical services in Malawi, he said, oh, well, well, this service, I mean, this is an essential part of our primary health care system that puts a health worker into every single household in the country. And that's what we need. So it's gone from like a seed of what was possible to something that was I don't want to say taken for granted but but now, it's seen as essential part yeah. of the primary health care system right the same way that you know the national health service hotline here in the UK is seen as an essential part of the health care system right but um to hear that that you know to think about that idea that Soyapi had and then to hear the director of clinical services say you know, mm -hmm. oh, this is an integral part of our primary healthcare system. Like we did not know that that's what that would become. I want to broaden our our scope. Just take a minute and think with me. What's the world that you're working to create? It's that just world that you just talked about, James. It's it's the idea that no matter where you are, that if you need access 
to healthcare, that access is available to you. And it's available in a quality way. So that's a world where children thrive. It's a world where, you know, we see communities really rising up and, and being able to reach, you know, the, the full potential. Healthcare is not the only thing, but without good health, you can't finish your education. Without good health, you can't engage in the economy. So the world that you want to see is one where health is not the, it's the enabling factor, not the, the disabling factor right. or the impediment. What stands in your way? I think we are in a world right now where there's a real scarcity mindset, a fear that we can't meet the needs of everybody um, in the way that I think those of us in higher income countries have consumed, like we can't build a healthcare system that looks the way um, that the healthcare system does in the United States. It's not a just healthcare system there either. It's a high-resourced healthcare system that leaves, you know, millions of people behind. And yet, we've set up this paradigm that we don't we don't seem to know how to how to break out of that and how to say that if we could all figure out. A different model that worked for everybody we could stretch those resources farther and instead right now what i see is this sort of fear that we can't meet the demand and therefore we have to somehow limit that demand as opposed to an expansive view of where resources could be distributed differently and in a way that makes basic primary health care and the care that people need available to everyone so you think it's an issue with mindset not an actual limit on the resource i think that we live in a world where there are infinite resources, really, for the things that you care about and for the things that you prioritize. I mean, I don't, that sounds naive and that sounds, you know, overly optimistic, but the truth is we make choices all the time about what we spend money on. And, you know, we limit ourselves, I think, by saying it's not possible. And, and I mean, this is where I think Partners in Health has been absolutely incredibly influential in this field, right? And saying there isn't a healthcare system that's appropriate for low resource environments and a healthcare system that's appropriate for high resource environments. Like we need a model that works for everybody and everybody deserves that model. But if the high resource environments are going to consume more of them, I mean, this goes for so many things in the world right now, right? If we're going to overly consume our share of the pie, then there isn't going to be enough to go around and we need to shift that, that mentality. I'm wondering, can you just talk us through your framework from learn to develop to scale and sustain and give us a real example that helps us understand that pathway? Sure. I think the, you know, the learn, develop, scale and sustain sort of framework that we use is a pretty typical sort of innovation pathway, right? I think there are some differences in how that manifests maybe in a more private sector market-based solution to how it manifests in a system, you know, trying to work in a public system, you know, and on sort of a complex social problem. But basically what we talk about internally is that, you know, our first role is to be a bit of a de-risker to government, to really learn about a problem and to study that problem deeply and to, you know, look and say, what are the different ways that this problem would be solved in other environments? So look beyond just what are the one or two things that we could think to do, but really look at how others have solved and develop a solution, you know, in partnership with the government that 
can be tested in some way. And What's an example problem? Sure. So looking at supply chains, and this goes back, you know, we've been sort of iterating on, on this particular piece of the solution for or this particular problem for a long time. You know, how do you make sure, and I'll just use the vaccination example because it's very clear, how do you make sure that having vaccines where they need to be is not a barrier to a child getting vaccinated? So what we did there is we said, okay, well, let's look at the resources that are available, you know, in rural areas. In We started in Mozambique. We're doing it in Democratic Republic of Congo now. But how do you sort of look at what a supply chain needs and, and where those resources are in the community and how do you um, develop something that you can test. And so we basically developed a, a what now is, a I think, a very um, widely accepted practice of, you know, you need a trained person you know, who's responsible for managing the supply chain. You need um, a transportation route that is organized and well-resourced and gets um, medicines out to where they need to be vaccines out to where they need to be. You need a data system that supports the who, where do medicines need to go and where and all of that. And you need to have the correct financing, you know, through the government systems to, to make that, that work. And so, you know, originally that financing in the early stages of learning and developing the solution, you know, you, we have to provide more of that. We have to sort of de-risk this and provide more of that capital to, to test the solution. And then once we've done that and tested that and shown that in fact, you know, we can reduce costs for the government. We can, um, you know, using this system can reduce costs. It can get more children vaccinated. It can get supplies where they need to be. You know, then the next step is to say, okay, now Village Reach could try to scale this ourselves, but we won't get very far. So who are the other actors in the ecosystem who really need to be the ones to take this solution to scale? And that's where we move into the scale and system. You started leading Village Reach basically at the start of 2018, but you've been at the organization for some time. What have you learned by making the leap from being a senior staff to being its executive leader? One of the most important things I've learned is how to be a better listener. Every organization goes through its cycles of, you know, how you grow and change as an organization in different phases of your development. And I think, you know, our early phase was about real innovation and real sort of creating a new norm for how healthcare services could be delivered. Our second phase was about figuring out how to really influence global actors to accelerate that change, both at the country and global level. And I think our third phase is about stepping back and listening better. And I say that because it's both internal. You know, we are a very different team than we were. We now have 175 staff you know, spread out in multiple different countries? And how do we make sure that we're really pulling the best of what our staff know and the deep experience that they have into our work and into saying, you know, how are we really addressing healthcare delivery challenges and are we addressing the right ones and are we bringing in, you know, all of the expertise we have as an organization, as well as how do we listen better to what our government partners want, to what communities want, you know, so that we're really ensuring that we're not stuck on the problem as we think that it needs to be solved based on working on this for 18 years, but we're instead really pivoting to ensure that we're bringing in what do our government partners really feel needs to be solved at this point. And so I think, you know, taking over the leadership of the organization provides that opportunity to say, I have this deep knowledge and I've worked with many of our partners for the nine years that I've been at Village Reach, yet at the same time, I'm a, you know, I'm a different leader and I'm a new leader in this space. And 
there's that opportunity to step back and say, you know, have we been a good enough listener, both to our own staff and to our partners? So here at Skull, we are fostering community. Community involves reciprocity, right? The right to give, receive, ask for, and return help. Thinking about our listeners and the community that surrounds uh, the Skull World Forum, what do you need from those who are listening? And what would you be able to offer? I need to be pushed to make sure that we're really using our voice and our resources to address the most critical challenges. And, and so one example of that right now is I think we have a responsibility to really look at you know, how climate is impacting health. And yet that's not something that I think the health community has been very strong at doing. And so I feel like from this community, I need those people that keep you honest, that say, you know, are you really digging deep enough to make sure that the work that you're doing is contributing in the best way possible to solving some of the most pressing problems facing our world right now? And, and how do we all diverse? So I need that. I need that reality check sometimes of, you know, are we doing enough? Are we going far enough? In terms of what we can give, I think I feel strongly that Village Reach has learned both through hard work, humbling experiences, and, um, you know, a lot of really great people coming together across the globe to solve problems together that we've really come up with some great lessons around what it takes to integrate your work into public health systems and government systems and the steps that it takes to get there. And I'm so excited to share that, but also to have others push us on that and say, but here's what you didn't think of, or here's what we did too. And so I love it when we can sit down with another organization and talk about our models and and how we see this sort of shift of governments really taking in this work and scaling it in a way that we can't what we've learned through that process and, and how to help others do it. And I'm excited to have those conversations. 